back to the 23rd Psalm, that you know, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil because you're with me. You'll never leave me alone. I'll always have a Father that walks with me as you will too this morning. As I looked out as, as we were singing this morning, I realized uh, every prayer request isn't always in the bulletin and every answer to prayer isn't always listed in the bulletin. And on one hand, I see Dan Schuler here this morning. I realize uh, he's got a lot of back pain going on now and uh, he needs to be in our prayer this morning. Uh, we can also be in prayer. Judy Ullery has a new job and and we can thank the Lord for that. And then I looked and saw Joy Hickson here this morning in the back. And she is an answer to prayer to have here this morning after the eye troubles that she's been having as well. You know, after I hear a song like that, even as a preacher, I'm tempted to say, you know, we've heard the word. Uh, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. But if you would, just for a few moments this morning, I want you to turn with me in God's word into Luke, the 19th chapter, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, because the Word of God is the one thing. You know, heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus said, my Word will never pass away. And we need to make uh, a priority in bringing God's Word with us and sharing the Word together. This is a parable that Jesus would tell. It's called the parable of the minus, and it's very similar to the parable of the talents that you'll find in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, but there's some differences in it there. Uh, and as, as we go to this, I'm going to have you turn to Luke 19, but I want to show you what our key verse is for this whole series of you versus wild. It comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 through 6. And as we did on the first day, two weeks ago, out loud together, I want to read this verse again out loud together this morning. Read this with me if you would. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we prepare to come to your word. There are so many things that attempt to crowd out the truth of what you gave us through your Holy Spirit and the pen of the Apostle Paul and others in Scripture. Write your word on our heart. Help us to store it up in our hearts so that we will not sin against you. And Father, as we face this wild world, as a world that becomes more and more combative to those who would have faith and believe and trust and follow you with passion, Lord, give us strength. Give us courage for this adventure. And always, as the song says, remind us we're not alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus is heading for the city. He was in Jericho, about 17 miles away from the city of Jerusalem, near the place where John the Baptist, our man of the wilderness that we talked about two weeks ago, was performing his ministry. By Luke 19 in the parable of the Minas, this is the last time that he was going to the capital city. The enthusiasm of the people is running high, and some expected that at any minute now, Jesus would announce himself as the Messiah, and he would take control of their world. But Jesus knew that in less than two weeks, he would be crucified. And the kingdom of God was going to be very, very different than the kingdom they thought it would be. And so he told them this parable so that his disciples would have a better understanding of what was about to transpire. 
And I want to I share with you this morning just four basic truths that should help us to prepare not just to survive, but rather to thrive on the mountain of our faith. And when it feels like it's us versus the wild, these truths help us to make the most of our time and our life of adventure. The first one is this. Friends, Jesus Christ is sovereign, but his kingdom is delayed. Friends, Jesus, we need to always remember as we sing, he is Lord, he is Lord. We always need to remember he is the Lord. He is the king. But his total dominion is yet to be revealed, and it's going to take time. Luke 19, verse 12, the parable begins. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, here's what you may not know. This is one of the only parables that Jesus tells that actually has roots in an actual historical event. Flavius Josephus, the first century historian, tells us that in that first century, that, that there was a power struggle that was going on in the Middle East. When King Herod the Great died, he had willed his territory to his three boys, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. And Archelaus, his third son, was given the region of Judea and along with it, the city of Jerusalem. All three of the brothers, and if you've ever had this happen in your family, you know how awful this can get. All three of them contested their father's will. And they went to Rome to get a settlement from Augustus Caesar. But before they get there, an angry group of Jews, 50 of them, went from Jerusalem to meet with Caesar first. And they begged him. Please, please, please don't appoint Archelaus as our ruler. We've had enough of the Herod family. We've had enough of the brutality. And they hated Archelaus. And they begged him, please don't appoint him. Appoint somebody else. I saw in an interview with Jimmy Kimmel that Hollywood actor Samuel L. Jackson said, if President Donald Trump gets reelected, He's going to move to South Africa and withdraw his citizenship from the United States. <laughs> Amy Schumer, the, the comedian and cousin of Senator Charles Schumer, said this. She said, my act will have to change because I'm going to need to learn to speak Spanish because I'll move to Spain or somewhere else. Or even worse, and you know this is true because she said it was true. And she said, I don't say things I don't mean, but Miley Cyrus Hannah Montana said on Instagram, my heart will break into 100,000 pieces. I'm moving if Trump is my president. And I don't say things I don't mean. Even though she said the exact same thing the first time he was elected and she's still here. Now I realize with those three actors, some of you, you're mourning already because you're going to miss them if this happens, I, I can tell. But the opponents of Archelaus, they hated him like that. And they did everything they could to prevent his appointment over them. And Caesar, he, he disregarded their request. And he appointed Archelaus as the ruler. The only concession he made was, is that he didn't call him king, but rather he called him a tetrarch. But when Archelaus went home, he rounded up those 50 men that had appeared before Caesar and said, anybody but this man, he rounded all 50 up and, and he executed them. And he seized all of their property. That was something that the Jewish nation and the people never forgot. It stuck in their memory. And for decades, they hated him all the more. You remember back when, when Jesus was born? 
And Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus and they fled to Egypt for a time because Herod was slaughtering all the babies of two years of age and under trying to stamp out Jesus. The time came for them to go back, but it said when Joseph heard that Archelaus was, was the ruler over Judea, that he rather took, he was warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he took the baby and he went and lived in the region of Nazareth. Thirty-three years later, when Jesus said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself crowned as king and then to return, his hearers immediately made the connection to that historical event. Verse 13 of the parable. So this king called ten of his servants and he, he gave them ten minas each. Each received the same. A mina was a, a unit of money that was equal to about three months of pay. So it was a pretty good chunk of money. And he said, put this money to work until I come back. But Jesus said his servants, his subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And friends, from the time Jesus arrived on this earth, there were those who hated him and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. When the wise men said to Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? It was Herod who said, we don't want him to rule over us. And that's what led him to slaughter all the children that first Christmas. And sometimes when you feel like it's you versus the wild, sometimes it seems like the wild is getting the better of you. When Jesus began his ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And when he was done, he rolled it up and handed it back to the attendant. And he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people of his own hometown said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And they led him to the cliff outside the city and were going to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked through the crowd and went his way. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people lined the streets and said, hail to the king, the religious leaders said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And they plotted to kill him. And on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus said, they've seen the miracles, and yet they've hated both me and my Father for no reason. The reason is in John 7, 7, because Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. And later when the disciples would go out into the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the message would be proclaimed that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And the same leaders would say, we don't want this Jesus to rule over us. And so they imprisoned the disciples. They stoned Stephen. They beheaded James. They even opposed the Apostle Paul everywhere he stepped. And Jesus had predicted, all men will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So please understand, as the church today, the reason we have some empty seats in this room is because we will not change the message that Jesus is Lord. Every moment that we stand for Jesus Christ will bring the opposition of people who will still say, we don't need Jesus. We don't want this man to rule over us. You take that man's commandments out of our courtroom. 
You take that man's prayer out of our schools or out of our football games before practices. You take that man's Bible out of the public arena. You keep the church and faith out of politics. Friends, we're following King Jesus. But just in this past year, I want you to see some of these numbers. Over 245 million Christians lived in places where they experienced high levels of persecution. 245 million. 4,305 Christians were killed last year for their faith. And that's probably a low number. 1,847 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. And 3,150 believers have been detained without trial. They were arrested, they were sentenced, or, or imprisoned. Friends, don't be led. To follow Jesus Christ is to take up your cross and to follow him daily. And the mistreatment, the persecution of Christians around the world, it's one of the biggest human right issues of our era that swept under the rug. As a believer, you're going to face ridicule. You may face stiff fines. You may face laws against sharing your faith or unjust trials or, or public mockery or scorn. You might be arrested and you might, if you share the faith, be attacked. But if we follow Jesus Christ, we trust that the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. Why would anyone have such animosity towards the church that only seeks to go and fulfill the mission of Christ in seeking and saving the lost. I think sometimes it's because we, we can be too abrasive. Sometimes we need to speak the, the truth more with love. But I think sometimes it's just that people don't want Jesus to rule over them. You know, Philippians 2 says that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that God crowned him the king of kings. Philippians 2 says God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And friends, every knee should bow and every tongue could confess, but they don't. Jesus Christ right now, he reigns in the hearts of those who voluntarily submit to him, but he's not Lord right now over every heart. King over every raunchy entertainment, over every shady business activity, over every humanistic classroom's teacher, or every church's decisions. The Bible says that Satan is temporarily the prince of this world. It calls him the God of this age. He's called the prince of darkness. And he, he bragged to Jesus even at the start of his ministry, Jesus, if you'll just bow down to me, then I'll give you all of these kingdoms. That's why Christians, we will always be strangers and foreigners in this world because so much of our world right now is under Satan's control. Now, Revelation chapter 19 says that one day when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to judge and make war. He'll come with the armies of heaven. He'll send out an army for us, and he'll put his enemies under his feet. Revelation 19, 15, I love this picture. Out of his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But that is yet to be fully realized in this world. 
And right now we have to live as if His administration has taken over of all of our lives. We have to temporarily tolerate victories by an adversary. And we understand that our Savior's reign, it's imminent, but it's delayed. And it'll make a difference in how we encounter the evil of this world. It means you quit blaming God for all of the brokenness and all the nastiness that this world throws at you. The domestic violence, the drug abuse, the human trafficking, the arguing, the rudeness, the bitterness. There's a lot of things going on in this world that God does not will to happen. But one day, when Jesus returns as king, all the ledgers will be balanced. Everything will be made right. Now here's the second thing. His servants will be held accountable when Jesus returns. Going back to our parable in Luke 19, verse 15, again it said, A nobleman went to a distant country to have himself made king, and his subjects hated him and protested. We don't want him to be our king. He was made king, the scripture says, however, and he did return home. And he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. In other words, the owner, he expected a profit. What's God entrusted to you? Has he given you children? Has he entrusted you with, with a parent that's alive, a mother or a father? Has he entrusted you with a spouse? Has he given you gifts as a treasure? Our mina that's given to us can represent money, talents, children, but it certainly represents the good news of Jesus Christ. He's given us various kinds of treasure, and we are expected to make the most of every gift he's given. If we're gifted with things in this world, we're to be good stewards of, of what we have, not to indulge or to hoard things in our life, but rather to use them as an opportunity to do good and to share. If you're gifted to teach, Paul would say in another book of the Bible, you need to teach. If your gift is leadership, you need to lead. And, and, and coming up this next month, we're going to have nominations for deacons and elders. Friends, if you've got a gift of administration, then you administrate. If it's a gift of singing, you sing. Some of you have gifts in programming computers and finances, and you need to serve with those gifts. You need to inspire children. Those of you who have the gift of encouragement, I can't tell you how many times God has blessed me just a couple of weeks ago. One of our visitors came up after the worship time and just shared with me a word of encouragement that, that's still, it's still buoying my spirit. It means so much to me. And friends, if you've got the gift of encouragement, now's the time to encourage one another. You ought to be more talented today than you were five years ago with the gifts that God has given you. You better expand it and, and you better grow it because God expects it. We ought to be better Christians now than we were then. Second Peter 1 verse 5 says this, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And then verse 8 goes on to say, If you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, well, they'll keep you from being ineffective, and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, one day when the Lord comes back, He's going to hold us accountable for what He's entrusted to us. Every empty chair in this room is a trust that God has placed, not in just the preacher, not in just the elders and the deacons and the worship leaders. 
Every empty seat in this room is a trust that God's placed in you, that you will share the good news, that you will invite and bring someone to occupy that seat, to be blessed by the gift of the church as God designed it, the gift of fellowship with his spirit together with one another. And on judgment day, he's going to evaluate our productivity. The Bible says in Luke 12, uh, verse 2, and, and this, is, this is a sobering section of Scripture, it says there is nothing that is concealed that will not be disclosed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. All those things you whisper when I'm preaching, I'm going to hear them one day, okay? What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms, it will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Some of you have security cameras at work or at home. There, they are so many places these days. We have a, a ring button on the door of the church. And I think Susan can look and see who, who's ringing the bell there. But you go to the bank, you go to the supermarket, uh, you students that are in school. It doesn't matter if you're on an elevator. Security cameras are everywhere. And, and I just read this past week, law enforcement officers say that this eyes are on you almost everywhere. You are caught in the act on CCTV cameras every day, and the average American can be caught more than 75 times a day. Are you ready for your close-up in your life? Can you imagine 75 times a day? And you, you don't even know it. Sometimes you've got the video cameras in your home. I know that because prayerfully tomorrow is my last day serving on grand jury for the last four months. And I've gotten to see home video camera after home video camera of thieves pushing in air conditioner units to climb into houses or crawling on the ground thinking that the camera can't see them as they crawl through somebody's house and you can clearly see their face and, and they will stand before you and say, I wasn't there, but you've seen the video. There's so many things that we think that we're going to be forgotten, but every YouTube fail video Every act of our life is caught. And you know God, he doesn't need a video camera. But, but his heart, his eyes are just, they're rolling all the time. When we don't follow his instructions, we stumble and we fall on account of every time, every failure, it'll be there to see. The Bible says there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. Now, there's a caveat to that, and I'm going to get to that, and some of you are jumping ahead already. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they've spoken. John Stott, who wrote the Case for Christ, said this, Nothing will more quickly rid us of laziness and coldness, of hypocrisy, cowardice, and pride than the knowledge that God sees, hears, and God takes into account. Here's the third thing. The saved one day will be rewarded in proportion to their faithfulness. Now don't gloss over this because this is so beautiful. Luke 19, verse 16. The servants return. The first one comes and says, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. And the master replies, Well done, my good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina it's gained five more. And his master said, you come and you take charge of five cities. Now before I talk about those verses, I, I want to make two clarifying points. Here's my caveats. Number one, we are saved by grace, not by works. We are saved by the heart, the love, the grace of God. But we are rewarded according to our works. 
Salvation is not a work. It's a gift that you receive when you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then secondly, the sins of believers have been deleted from the record. That is such good news. The Christian doesn't have to give an account for sin on Judgment Day because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin. The Bible says God buries our sin in the deepest sea as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. And he's not going to retrieve it. He's erased the videotape of the Christian. He sees us, Scripture says, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. But the Bible does say, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I heard uh, Bob Russell convey once that he pictures this like graduation day, and I thought about that, having just gone through graduation a few months ago, and, and I like that. You know, the special students come forward, and, and they're honored, and, and those who have just barely made it by, they still get their diplomas. The assistant principal might, might read, Mark Myers, member of the National Honor Society, salutatorian, Perfect, 4.0, grade point average, all-state in basketball, president of the FCA, $10,000 National Merit Scholar Award winner. And the family beams and everybody that knows him applauds as he walks across the stage and he gets his diploma. Then the, then the assistant principal calls out the next name, Bill Warax. My mother applauds, you know. Uh, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, honors associated with his name. He, he, he's, I'm delight, delighted to graduate, but there's no special accolades for me. But neither are my failures made public. They don't say, you know, Bill was nearly kicked out of social studies class 40 times for talking last year. In one month, he was almost suspended for coming to school and pulling the fire alarm twice. He's been a constant pain to his teachers. Bill, Bill here's your diploma. Get out of here. You know, th those failures are disregarded. Now, some of those are true, and I'll leave that to your imagination. Is that what Judgment Day is like for the Christian? God doesn't share the Christian's embarrassing moments. But some, according to Scripture, will graduate by the skin of their teeth. That's, that's what it means in my understanding in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, if any man builds on a foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, and those are valuable metals that do not, they don't burn easily under intense heat, Wood, hay, or straw, and you know those things, they go up in an instant. His work will be shown what it is because that day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. But if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flame. You see, that tells me there are some people that will be barely saved. But there are some that will be saved and rewarded, given in direct proportion to our faithfulness. And, and I want you to realize how generous God is. God doesn't say, you know, you, you've earned 10 minus, here's a couple more minus for you. you. You didn't earn five minus, here's a few more for you. He says what? You, you, you earned 10 more you get 10 cities to oversee. You got five more minas of coins. I want you to be the governor of five complete cities. 
Ephesians 6, 8 says, The Lord will reward everyone for what good he does, whether slave or free. And friends, God's rewards will be beyond what you and I could ever imagine. That's what the Bible says. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Richard Jackson used to preach at the First Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And every week he would meet with two preachers in the area. And, and the other two preachers, they were very, very diet conscious. As they sat down for breakfast, they'd order egg beaters and skim milk and oat bran muffins. And Jackson would sit down and he would order whole milk and real eggs and biscuits and gravy. And, and those two would say to him, you know, one of these days, you're going to regret the way you eat. You're, you're going to die in your 60s and we're going to live well into our 80s or 90s. And Jackson always smiled and replied to them, Oh, I can see it now. The two of you, you're going to be in a nursing home one day, sitting in wheelchairs, decrepit, senile, and drooling all over yourselves. And I'm going to be in heaven celebrating, and you're going to say, Just think, poor Richard's in heaven, missing out on all the fun here. <laughs> Our reward in heaven, man, it's going to be so much more than we can imagine or what we've ever truly earned. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm personally glad to know, it's not easy, I'm sure, to govern a city. I've never played that role in this life. But I'm personally glad to know that there are going to be challenges. And there's going to be work in heaven. Because I am most fulfilled as a person when I'm busy and when I'm in service to God and to other people. If I focus too much on myself, I get lonely, I get miserable, I get depressed. But there's something gratifying in knowing that you're ministering, that you're helping somebody else. And heaven's not going to be a place where we all learn how to play harps and we sleep all day and we're just inactive. God's going to give responsibility and challenges and opportunities for his people. We keep on growing. Here's the last thing, and I'll close with this. Friends, the disobedient will be punished because of their weakness. Our parable ends in verse 20. Another servant came and said, Sir, here, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth, and I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. Now you know as you read that, the servant's made a couple of pretty flagrant mistakes. First, he's disobedient to the king. The king said, put it to work. And he did just the opposite. He hid it on a shelf. Secondly, he's fearful of the king. He had a wrong perception of the king's character. When you hear of his generosity and what he gave to those who were faithful, he didn't understand. He thought he was a harsh, demanding man, when in reality, he's loving and he's generous. And, and if he really did fear the king, wouldn't that have motivated him to at least be obedient? The truth probably is, he didn't really think about the matter at all. He was just glad to be a consumer just glad to take what the king could give for him. Glad for the honor, glad for the opportunity, whatever. Verse 22, the master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put the money on deposit? So when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest. And then Jesus said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But, but sir, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. 
Friends, think about the child born into this world with the blessing of a Christian parent. Maybe a single parent home, maybe the blessing of two Christian parents. They are raised before the Word of God, before the Bible. They're taken to church to a loving fellowship. They've been shared all the spiritual treasures of God. But they take it in their life, they take it home, and they put it on a shelf. Now that doesn't mean they necessarily lead an immoral life. They just never feel a need for God. They never feel the need to submit to Him or to go to church, never read the Bible, never try to use the gift that God gave them of their mind to develop it spiritually or to lead others to Christ. They don't need it. And one day when He stands before God, He'll be held accountable because of the gifts that were offered, and yet He's left with nothing. And Matthew's Gospel said He'll be cast out into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the king calls even for a more severe punishment on the disobedient. Verse 27, those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I think again of Archelaus taking those 50 men who said we don't want him to be our king and cruelly killing them. Now, I'm not saying God is cruel because if anything scripture tells us, he is generous And he is compassionate. But friends, our king really is a king. The strength that we rely upon as our Lord and Savior, he really is ruler of all. And he does not tolerate those who oppose him forever. The Bible teaches that God is going to judge the rebellious. He gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But if you say all your life, I don't want this. I don't need this man to rule over me. The day is coming. Revelation 2015. If anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now I know that most churches today try to push the doctrine of hell aside along with the hula hoop and dinosaurs and and everybody that I know is trying to air condition hell in some way. But friends, God is a just judge. And he loves us so much that Jesus warned people it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than it will be for you. You see, we have to be accountable for the good gift that God has provided. The Lord's patient. He's full of grace. The Lord is loving. But God's not a wimp. He's not a doormat. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is he cleanses us from our sin. If we respond to Jesus as our Savior, he cleanses us from our sin and he delivers us from hell. Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I love 1 Corinthians 15 when it says, listen, I'll tell you, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Billy Graham said when his grandmother died, just before she died, she rallied her strength and she looked up and she said, I see Jesus, and there's Ben, 
And Ben's got two eyes and two legs. And he said his grandfather Ben had preceded her in death and he had lost an eye and a leg in the Civil War. And when she saw him, he said, Ben's got two eyes, he's got two legs. The Bible says what is sown as perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. The Bible doesn't give a whole lot of information about that actual judgment and, and the minute details of it. But we do know the promises of God. In Revelation 21, when we're told someday, no more tears, no more pain, no more hip surgeries, no more vision issues. All the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated upon the throne said, behold, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And friends, I'm certain of one thing. After death for each one of us, the first thing we will do is we will fall on our knees and cry, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Jesus is Lord, the one who died for you, the one who died for me. And friends, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never acknowledged him as the Lord of all of your life, then today as we sing a song of invitation, a song of decision, this is the time to prepare your heart and be right with the Lord. To say, God, I receive what you did for me on the cross at Calvary. I exchange all of my sin that deserves nothing but death for the death that you gave. I exchange it for forgiveness. Father, I want to walk your way. I want to receive the gift of your Holy Spirit and the power that knows no limit today. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up at this time. And friends, if that's your decision, maybe you want to be a member here at Springfield Church of Christ. Maybe you just need prayer for your family or for you. We have elders and deacons here that would be pleased, honored to pray for you this morning. But I'm going to ask you to stand with me now if you would. And I'm going to pray if you have a need as we sing in just a moment, you come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I come before you because you are a good, good Father. I want to thank you for every spiritual truth you shared with us, and I want to thank you for doing it in a way that we could understand. The parables you told, they stir us up. We can't ever imagine servants being wicked enough or people being wicked enough to, to say they don't want you as a king. But then we realized there was a time that we didn't know you as our Lord and Savior. We lived in darkness. We lived fulfilling nothing but the desire of our, our minds and our bellies, of our bodies. But there's more to us than that. Everyone in this room, Father, you created in your image and they're never gonna be satisfied until they find the fulfillment of that image in, in what you have done for them. So if your spirit's speaking to someone now, Lord, give them the courage to take the step to come forward and say, I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Father, there are those in this room that have never been baptized by their own decision. Some have been baptized by their parents. And Father, I honor those parents for the, the love and desire they had for their children to know you. But that baby didn't know about its sin. And now that they've grown up, they know they are sinners. They know they've lived a life that needs to be washed clean. 
So let them honor their parents' decision. Let them honor, above all, your command. And let them choose to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' name.